Welcome back to Investing Experts Podcast. I'm Daniel Snyder. Today, we're joined by Seeking Alpha contributor Clem Chambers, the man who started in the investing world as a kid when his father traded commodities. Towards the end of today's episode, we get his take on why he is expecting another significant drop in Bitcoin. But first, we dive into his methodology for investing in this type of market, his thoughts on the Fed, and why he is saying we're stuck in a range-bound market for the foreseeable future. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. At times, myself or the guest, my own positions in the securities mentioned, but this is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. And if you're enjoying the show, do us a favor and leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, or leave a comment on our show notes page. We love the feedback and interacting with the best investing audience in the world. Now let's get to the interview. Clem, so great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. For the people that don't know who you are and and what you've been writing about, give us a little intro of how you got started investing and what you focus on here on Seeking Alpha. Well, I got started in investing because back in the day in the dot-com boom, the company that I was running was an incubator. And the big thing that we got right was a European uh, financial website for private investors called ADVFN. And I thought, well, we really got to make this work. I'd made a huge dot-com um, uh, style fortune from doing all that that stuff and lost a huge dot-com style fortune in 2001 and 2002. But at the time, my idea was I've got to have skin in the game. So I took all my money um, that was liquid and I stuck it in the markets. Um, because if you're going to build a site for private investors, you might as well put your, your all your money on the line and build that site for yourself. So that was kind of the the first or the second generation. Now, the first generation was when I was a little child, a very small child. My father was a very large commodity speculator in the 70s. And he put a little earpiece on the telephone. And he said, well, when I'm on the phone to my brokers, rather than asking, you know, what's going on, daddy? Just pick up this earpiece and put it to your ear. So I would put this to the ear and hear my father buying coffee and gold and all that stuff and the rings and all that, you know, not, not, not Lord of the Rings, but the ring of commodities and people, you know, used to take orders and there were people and they would come away and say, I got you 200 lots and all that stuff. So I was brought up as a, a very small child. I mean, you're talking about 10 year old with that going on around and being welcomed to the party by my father to all that coming and going, which of course, when you're really that young, you absorb a lot of stuff that an adult wouldn't absorb and insights that even the, the adults involved don't absorb. You kind of hear that um, in your child's mind. So then back in 2000, um, you know, another 20 or so years later, there I was with all my liquid in the markets building and this financial website and that financial website bought investors hub which is a, a u.s small cap um financial website and then for the next 20 odd years i was doing that now um initially i was told oh by the pr people oh why don't you write stuff about stocks and shares you know you'll become um help you know marketing of your website so i thought that was really good i, I was already writing for financial um uh, the financial page of wired magazine during the dot-com that was something I, I did back then so I fell naturally into writing and um, financial articles but what I found was it's very valuable because you have to have your thinking straight if you're going to write articles and pieces about investment because I mean you can write this stuff oh this one's going to the moon that one's going to be that's rubbish that is and oh this one's you know it's going to 10x or you see a lot of that but I kind of not interested in that what I'm interested in is what why how when who 
and and have a as they say a thesis i hate that word but you know to have a thesis and to have a thesis to write 600 words or a thousand words you've really got to crystallize your thinking out so over the years i've used my writing to crystallize my thinking and um i have over the years seemed to have caught all the crashes right i not be there and when they happen and be in at the bottom i've i've predicted a few that haven't happened but I tell you, missing the ones that do happen is well worth getting out before the market doesn't crash and then kind of going back in and going, oh, well, that didn't happen, did it? Oh, dear, dear. And um, so, you know, the big money that in my experience is not to buy Apple at five cents and sell it at $200. If you can do that, good, good on you. It's to just not be there when the earth cracks open and everybody falls in and to be able to buy the aftermath. And and that is what I, I kind of focus on that. And then why, what's going on here? What, what's all that about then? Why is that doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And then trying to make sense of it, trying to understand what's going on below the surface, not, you know, Fred said this and somebody woke up in the morning with a great idea and that's why it moved today, but the underlying drivers of things. And, and to do that, you have to do a, a lot of study, but also you have to then synthesize it into something. And you don't have to be right, but if you've got a map, when things start to go away from what you're, you think is going to happen, it gives you an ability to steer back onto the right course. So that's a short story um, of my um, journey. My journey. I like to say these days, I've been on an investment journey. So that's, that's a, a potted history of my investment journey. It is a journey indeed. And I wanted to follow up and ask with you, it sounds like you have this wealth of knowledge from having the young upbringing, talking about commodities and listening to what was going on there to then moving into equities. And we're talking internationally around the world and understanding how the workings all happen. What is your approach nowadays when you're, are you picking individual stocks? Are you picking futures? Are you in commodities? Are you in crypto? How do you select things nowadays? When I was much younger, I had the opportunity to change my life dramatically. And the big change was I didn't have a television. And if you want to change your world, get rid of your television. If you can get rid of your television, you are left with a lot of time, a huge amount of time. And for me, that meant going on various um, you know, uh, wild goose chases into mathematics, into all sorts of knowledge. And all knowledge is valuable, as it should be. Knowledge is power. And if you take your knowledge and roll it into your investment, then you will get some great investments and you and you should make decent money. And one place that I stopped off at um, was maths a long, long time ago. And I, I, I did quite a lot of study there. And if you look at game theory, which is um, very powerful and also can be used very in a very evil manner and often is, there's a very interesting idea of games. So, you know, if you're, you can look at the stock market as a game. So there's you know one side and that side in fact a lot of people have mental pictures of the markets in terms of things like it's a war it's a battle they did this and all that good stuff well actually if you abstract games out there's three sorts of games there's a positive sum game where by playing it there's uh, money coming to the table so you can imagine that you're playing i don't know checkers and and someone keeps bringing sandwiches so it doesn't matter who wins and loses that you all they all get sandwiches out of it yeah and the game's 50 50 plus sandwiches so that's a positive sum game and in that um pretty much everybody should be able to win and the stock market is on historically a seven percent positive sum game so if you um throw darts at the wall street journal and i, I recommend that or whatever you do put it at the bottom of your parrot 
tray and wherever the parrot leaves um, its breakfast, you buy that stock. On average, you should get 7% every year. Now, your parrot is, is a pretty good stock picker when it comes to that, which is the basis of ETFs, random walk down Wall Street and all that good stuff. And that's a game you want to play, because if your parrot can get 7% in the market, you should be on good ground, even if you're wild and crazy and, and, and do worse than, than random. And then there's a zero-sum game where you're playing this game at the table, and if you win 10, the guy at the other side loses 10. Well, that's a bit of a skill game, and you better be skilled. And when you look out your window, you see this crystal tower with JP Morgan on top, and you realize it's packed out with PhDs and all got computers and are all modeling the market like crazy. You know, you've got to really have a high opinion of yourself to think that you're going to beat them. And then you get a negative sum game. And that's like poker in a casino. So you sit there playing and the winner takes the pot and all that. But the house is taking 10 percent on every pot. So the pot is always shrinking. In that game, you will always lose. You must lose. It's very, very difficult for anybody who constantly plays that game to win because the, the tide is always going out. The pot of money you're playing for is always draining away. Now, it's very hard to find a financial market that isn't negative sum. Options, wow, that's a negative sum game for you. And, you know, uh, commodities, uh, that's a negative sum game because you've got to realise in the market, where's the value coming to the table? Where are the sandwiches? Yeah. And commodities, someone digs it up, someone buys it, someone's got a risk of he's going to dig it up, no one's going to want to buy it. Someone's got a risk of no one supplying him with the cocoa beans for his chocolate. So that's why it exists. But in terms of direction, in terms of making money out of supply and liquidity, it's hard to see where the value is there. When you go to equities, it's very easy. It's economic growth and progress. You know, someone at Microsoft goes, oh, I've got a better idea. Oh, I've invented one of these. So there's value coming into that dynamic. There's no very, you know, uh, maybe there is some value coming into options. I can't see it. Maybe there is some value coming into commodities. I, I can't really see it. Maybe there is some value coming into Forex. I can't see it. But I can clearly see the sandwiches coming to the table in equities. So that's the game that I play. So that's why I do equities. Now, obviously, you can go, well, it's blooming obvious the yen's going to go up now, or it's blooming obvious that the Turkish lira is going to go down. But it's very easy to be wrong there. Whereas with equities, your parrot can do it. So you should be able to add to your parrot's return in, in, in equities. You do a bit of study, be a bit sensible, read a few books about sensible investing rather than the thousand books about getting rich quick. You'll be, you'll be, in, you, you'll be in great shape. So that's why equities are benign, because it's a positive sum game. And you only ever want to be playing positive sum games if you want to make money. Now, a lot of people, you say, well, a lot of people lose money in the market. So what's going on there? And they get paid not in money. They get paid in kind. They buy stocks that make them feel good for whatever reason, because they go down the country club and say, well, I bought some of this. I bought some of that. And sometimes maybe it does make the money. Sometimes it, it will lose them a lot of money. So the market will pay you in, in the coin that you want to be paid in. And if you want to be paid in prestige, if you want to be paid in fun, I mean, why would you buy a pink sheet stock? Well, it's a lot of fun. Why would you buy GameStop? Well, it's a lot of fun until it you know, rips your wallet out of your back pocket. So people want to get paid in excitement, dopamine, fun. The market will pay you in that, but it won't pay you in cash as well. Right. So when you go down into the areas that someone like Mr. Buffett goes to, which is so dull, 
go, 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 right? And, and you know, why would you want to buy that? Why, why would you want to buy, um, you know, Chevron or whatever it was, Exxon? I, I, I wrote a piece um, on Exxon a few years ago. I very rarely tip single stocks. It's gone up 400%. Why is it down so low? Who wants to own Exxon? Oh, I own Exxon, you know. Oh, what a boring person you are, right? So it has to pay you in cash. So I stick to boring stuff that pays in cash. So positive sum game, boring the pace in cash, and you know, you're know you really mainly done. All right, Clint, so let me ask you this. We're in a interesting year of time for the last two years, right? This bear market has been going. We've seen the rips of the upside here in the first two months of the year. Well, first month up, second month down. For you and these boring names or these sectors, what are you favoring for the year to be in a boring name during a time that doesn't seem as boring for investors? Okay, when I was really, really young, my father was making huge, absolutely mind-blowing sums in commodities. And I thought, well, you know, I'm going to ask him how he's doing this because all these other parents seem thick as, you know, thick as mints, as they say in the UK. And they're, you know, they're counting their pennies. It's the 70s. And, you know, he's making unbelievable money. So I go, Dad, how do you make money in the markets? And this is me, I'm nine or 10. And he says, very simple, son. All you've got to know is which way the market's going. And as a nine-year-old, I wasn't convinced about that. I said, but what do you mean? He says, well, you know, you, you find something that's going to go up a long way, you buy it, it goes up a long way, and then you sell it. Simple as that. All you need to know is which way the market's going. And I thought, oh, that's really disappointing that my dad won't tell me how you do it. So anyway, 40 years went by, or 30 years went by, and I realised he was absolutely right. All you've got to do is know which way the market's going. And if you don't know, what, what the devil are you doing? You can't make money being long when the market's going down. You can't make money if the market's going to go sideways. So you have to know the market's going up. And if you don't know the market's going up, you shouldn't be in it. And, you know, it's, it's too damn obvious. And people go, oh, what do you mean you've got to know the market's going up? Well, if you don't know, what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? So the answer is, the market direction is really, really important. And right now, it's extremely difficult to judge because it's no longer a free market. You know, it's the Fed and it's the Chinese Central Bank. And to a lesser extent, well, it's not really the European Central Bank and, it, and the UK Central Bank. It was very important for recently, but they're generally not a long term um, influence. But that makes it very difficult and very dangerous. So you have to be able to read the mind of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, that's very, very, very tricky. My take on it is as follows, that in the past, you've got lots of crashes because the regulator had no idea what was going on. I mean, back in 2007 and 2008, they had no idea that all these blooming um, CDIs and CD squares and all these derivatives had hollowed out a huge section of the financial industry. They had no idea. The same thing goes back with the old um, SNL loan. The SNL loan is almost a photo, well, rather, the, the credit crisis, the global financial crisis, whatever they're calling it this month, is almost a photographic reproduction of the SNL collapse in America. It's the same thing. Wall Street went up and hollowed out all the SNLs with dodgy derivatives. And when they all failed, um, the regulators had to come in and say, what, what are you do? What, what, what's happened? They didn't know it was coming. Right now, they know where we are. They've been through enough to know that the whole system is under a threat of systemic uh, collapse. 
um, because you know one of the uh, one of the sides of one of the financial um, institutions would fall out and it not take everything with it. So they're on point, they're on patrol, and they're trying to hold what I would say is a line, because the crypto crisis, the, the lockdowns that took out twenty percent of global GDP minimum. And they printed huge amounts of money so the whole system wouldn't collapse because you can't go locking up your your people for a year and a, or, and a bit or a couple of years or whatever and 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 not bail out the whole country because you know it's like everyone or everyone in america takes holiday for two years and you're gonna have an economic collapse aren't you it's gonna be armageddon so the only way across away over it is the oldest trick in the book the oldest trick the romans did it everybody did it which is print um debase your currency Right. After every war, they always debase the currency because they have to pay. Well, they can't pay back the debt. Everybody pays back the debt by having their money debased. And, you know, hyperinflation in Germany after the 20s, you know, the French franc after the Second World War, you know, the British had a silver coin before 1918 or 1920. And then it had a half silver coin up to 1947. Every time that um, hard currency goes out of the money is after a war. And the current, the COVID crisis was the economic equivalence of a war. So inflation follows. Yeah. But they do know that everybody's up the creek. It's not like before where they, you know, six months later, they've worked it all out and they're, they're now furiously bailing away. They've been furiously bailing away ever since the COVID lockdowns and they're still bailing away. So really what I think you're seeing in America in particular is is them trying to hold a line because as you have inflation so you get back to some normality because inflation you print a large amount of money and then you get inflation because it comes through the pipe over time but if you stop printing money your inflation then disappears because you only get it one when you're increasing the money supply if you stop increasing the money supply it works its way through so here we are particularly with the fed actually trying to manage a transition from a disaster back to normality and and the the stock markets are going to follow that so i would i'm expecting was expecting until i thought it's gonna you know we're gonna have a nasty um crash it to go sideways as we did after 2000 because you know um it wasn't bernanke it was greenspan his move after the dot-com crash was basically the pin the dow in a range and you have 9-11 which knocked it out but you can see that there's a sideways range going for years because they can turn liquidity on and off and basically range bound the cost the, the price of financial assets and that's what i think they're doing but it makes it very very tricky because you're not in a free market you're in a market that's very um well totally controlled fixed if you want to put it this way cornered if you want to put it another way by the regulators in this case the fed now going back to the uk the uk nearly fell into the north sea and drowned um before christmas because their pension funds almost went bust because they borrowed huge sums of money to buy government bonds to leverage up government bonds to leverage up government bonds to leverage up government bonds ring a bell that's the way it always goes so when interest rates went up they got margin calls on those government bonds they borrowed and they nearly went bust so out came the government and when we'll bail you out and the disaster didn't happen and everyone's forgotten it occurred even because no one remembers a disaster that doesn't happen 
inches is as good as a mile. Now, the UK stock market is now looks like it's going through the roof because the pension funds are going, well, actually, we better not get any more money into those government bonds. We better put it somewhere else. Where are we going to put it? Oh, into equities like we haven't done for the last 20 years that much. So off the equities are going. So, again, it's like a government intervention. It's the central bank dictating what happens next. And you've got to be able to guess that. And, and that's really difficult. So right now I'm in a very unhappy place because the market is 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 incredibly difficult to call because of the fact that it's basically been led around by the nose by the central banks. And, and that puts us all in a quandary, I think. You did put out a recent article here on Seeking Alpha talking about the velocity of money and the money supply and the Federal Reserve and everything else. I, I think I was just enlightened that you see us in this range bound market, which we've heard elsewhere in the industry as well before. But for now, it's kind of like, how long will this be? Does it need to stay in this range bound market, in your opinion, maybe for the amount of time of taking out the excess $2 trillion that we pumped into the economy? Do you have any thoughts about how long this might last? Being an old man, I should be sort of catastrophic about it and go, oh, it's all going to come to an end. It's the end of the world. It's all going to crash. And, you know, there are circumstances when things crop up and they can't fix them. So, for example, the Fed could be pulling liquidity out of the market. And the banks could be keeping it in the reverse repo and just saying, just no, we're not going to lend it to anybody. No, no. So you get this kind of total drying up of money, even those large amounts of it, it'll be stuck somewhere. And, you know, putting cash, new money into illiquid corners is really what the central banks have been doing for quite a long time now. And because it creates trickle down. So you you print the money, you, you get it into the system. So people put it into semi or not very liquid assets and then it trickles down. So if you put it into housing, for example, oh, yes, yeah, a lot of people can't afford it anymore. But, you know, the money that went in got stuck in the houses and then only dribbles out when people remortgage and when they when they you know sell the house or when they drop dead and give it to their children so that avoids the sort of explosive inflation that we see now and if you want to get explosive inflation you do the helicopter money you just write people checks and you say here you go sit at home have a grand a month and bang, they go, yay, let's play Robin Hood. Yay, let's, let's whatever, let's go buy plastic toys at great expense. Let's have some um, bored apes. So, you know, the, the, if you give money to the rich, they don't need it. And, and it kind of dribbles down and, and, it, and it keeps everything liquid and, and groovy, but it doesn't, doesn't actually have an effect on prices. You give money to, inverted commas, the poor, which is most of us, yeah. Not only do they have to spend it, they want to spend it. So bang, up goes prices, up goes your prices of lettuce, etc. And, you know, that's the trouble that they've been through. But underneath the hood of all this are all these economic levers, all these economic measures. And you know, velocity of money had been dropping and it took me a long time to work this out. You say, What's going on with the velocity of money? What's going on? Well, they're printing it, but they're stuffing it places where it doesn't get used. So or the, the amount of money going around the circuit is roughly the same, but the amount of money out there is much more. So the, the average speed goes down because most of it's stuffed under the mattress and in people's socks, or in this case, in, in big houses and in, in Tesla stock and Apple. I mean, if you look at Apple, three trillion market cap or whatever it is, I mean, that's the best part of an iPhone for half the people in the world. I mean, you know, how does that happen? Well, 
there's all this money it gets stuffed into assets like that and you know i remember you could buy a dirty great house in hollywood for a hundred and fifty thousand dollars two hundred thousand dollars three hundred thousand it's all 10 million now right but the money that went in there is stuck there so the money supply blows up but the velocity of the money going around the loop is the same so the velocity drops off but of course if suddenly something squeezes all that money out you're going to get a problem or you can't get it out when you need it because it doesn't dribble down and all the rich people say i'm gonna you know keep it in microsoft and everyone else can can you know go can stay outside my barbed wire compound <laughs> so there's all these problems that that people like the fed have to do because ultimately the world lost 20 percent of its gdp and and a huge price was paid to save millions of lives but a huge price has been paid and it's now being paid and one of the ways that that governments pay the price for actions is through inflation because everybody pays it, it's a hidden tax so that's where we are now there's this money stuck in reverse repo so when that starts to dribble out that means things are going well that means the money's been drained out by tightening because as they tighten the money supply the banks are saying oh we'll have that money back fed i'll, I'll lend it to the guy down the road but if they don't that's going to be interesting but i think i think you know the fed gets a very bad rap for for what it does because people don't spot the disasters that didn't happen they don't spot you know um america falling into a financial abyss in 2009 that could have happened and it was very close i mean there was some big companies whose name i won't mention just in case they sue me who were on the edge of going bust i mean american huge american conglomerates totally famous that if america hadn't done all that unorthodox you remember all unorthodox monetary policy that's what they were calling it i oh this is all going to go horribly wrong what you're doing and without that large swathes of american industry would have vanished it would have been the 30s all over again but they pulled it off they pulled it you know that, all right they missed the fact that wall street was running away with all these inventions at the time and you know the whole world did lock down and that money was lost that that industry the industry didn't turn the handle those cars weren't made those roads weren't laid etc that bread wasn't baked and that money was was that wealth was not created and yet it's been a nasty dip it's been a been a rough old road but it's not a catastrophe and that's been they haven't got, no one can ever get it perfectly right but they are now trying to navigate us through out to the other side and inflation will start to drop drop off and there's all sorts of ways that things could go wrong from here that could make matters worse so you know going back there's the money supply in in america has been cut off has been slowed down is is in abeyance and they will turn it on and off depending how well they think or how badly they think stuff is is going on they will not kill the american economy to get inflation down to two percent they'll just say oh yeah it's a bit tricky we've got a bit more inflation than expected yeah that's because you turn it not marked money you know they could turn it off tomorrow bang they could turn, throw the whole of the american economy into depression and there wouldn't be any um inflation but they're not going to do that they are turning it on and off and they're doing a pretty good job playing it by ear because they don't know nobody knows no one's been here before so you know it, it's a it's a it's a tightrope and they've been very good to get down it and they might fall off it and somebody might knock them off it and who knows you know no one's expecting um mad mr putin to do what he did so there's plenty of black swans that can come paddling up but if the, if they don't come along i'm expecting them to um you know put a little bit of a a, a bend 
in the market. Uh, I think there's potential for for another, um, maybe a, a double bottom on the Nasdaq. Uh, it'll be interesting if we get there to see whether it's another leg down. But the American markets are. See what's happened. This is this is a bit of a theory of mine, and you won't read it anywhere. If you go back to the days of hedge funds, you take um, somebody that makes dog biscuits, and someone that makes dog biscuits, and the one that makes dog biscuits well and has got you know Mr. Dog Biscuit runs it. He's great. He's the genius of dog biscuits. And then you got Mr. I don't really care about dog biscuits. I'm just doing my job. Dog biscuit company. So they short that one, and they long the clever dog biscuit company, right? And then doesn't matter which way the market goes, the dog biscuit that's a good company will go up further and the better one will go down and they make money market neutral. So that's the hedge. So once you take that idea and then you spread it a bit and you spread it a bit and you spread it a bit, you might end up picking six companies going long on them and shorting the whole market. And so, you know, there's an element of these vastly overvalued companies and a notion of, of value. Actually, there's a lot of value in the U S market. So that might unwind. So all these, you know, how many billions, how many trillions, how much is that a person? Wow. Those guys, they might be in for a reasonably long term problem, a bear market for the big guys. But at the bottom, when there's American companies actually paying dividends, actually on low PEs, actually big, really solid companies that will go on forever, they might take a lift. But, you know, the ability for the American markets to have these incredibly inverted commas, overvalued or incredibly well-valued, valued to perfection stocks in a small group, and then quite a large group of really great companies that are undervalued, that might come un, un, unwound um, as we go forward. So, you know, th there's a lot of companies out there which I look at and I go, oh, I'd love to buy. I mean, take AMD and NVIDIA. I mean, they're going to be AI. I mean, they are AI. All these open AIs and chat GPTs, that's all driven by their hardware, right? So you look at that and you go, well, you know, AI is just the next big thing. I want to ooh, look at the valuations on that. Ah, so, you know, it's hard. It's hard to look at a lot of those glory companies and, and see that they aren't vulnerable for this realignment of the American markets in line with squeezing out um, too much liquidity, which is obviously there. You paint an incredible picture of what's going on with the economy and money supplies and everything. But for the investors that are maybe not those banks locking up their trillions of dollars at the reverse repo and sitting on it and waiting for opportunity and they want to put money to work now, where should people be looking for that alpha in this market? If, if Even if it's just like, we're in a chop zone. How do you play the chop? How do people invest during this time? I I think you have to. Well, I mean, there's one way to play it. If if you're all cash, well, you're 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 in a good spot. You're just frustrated that you're not, um, you know, that you can't put it to work. If you've got, but inflation eats away at the cash. Yeah, I know, I know, so but I not as fast as a stock market crash. True. So you know, you've got to decide which way the market's going, as my old man would have said. Is it going up or is it or is it not going up? So I think you just have to be hyper-choosing, hyper-hyper-choosing. So, I mean, most people are. I mean, most people are not, not invested properly anyway. They don't have a diversified portfolio risk. They just have a few things they love and they put all the money in it, which is madness. I mean, it technically it's madness, but in a bull market, it makes you seem like a genius. 
or, or, or very sadly misguided. You want a portfolio, diversify portfolio risk, and you want to have you want to have shares that you don't care with if they go down five percent tomorrow. Yeah, and you don't want to carry leverage, and you just want to have um, conviction stocks, as they would call it. I mean, one of the tests that I do. I mean, I, I prefer to be logical about things, but sometimes you have to be emotional about it. If you're thinking about buying a share and you want to ask somebody, should you buy it? You shouldn't buy it. Yeah. And if you're holding a share and you and you wonder, A, you think, why do I own that share? Sell it. If it, if it troubles you, sell it. Yeah, you should only have things in your portfolio that you don't really, you're not bothered whether you've got them or not. Because they're good, they're good companies. They, they Whatever they do, it, it, it gives you a feeling that you're happy with that. And, you know, most people, um, a lot of people in the markets, they're not investors, they're gamblers. And gamblers don't gamble to win, they gamble to lose. Because they get all their brain chemicals from, from that. They get their dopamine from tracking it. They get their adrenaline from when it goes up a lot or when it goes down a lot. And, you know, they get their relief when it goes down a lot and comes back and all, all that stuff. They're, they're just the same reason they sit around a, a table in Vegas. They get that emotional ride. Well, that is a very costly way to do things. But if you're an investor, you really look at the market. You go, wow, I, I'm, I'm risk on. I want to buy. I want to buy. I can't not buy. And, you know, that's what with me. I will go and I look and I go, oh, I like that. And I'll buy it. And then I'll go, you know, two or three days will pass. And I go, oh, I like that. I'll buy it. And and I don't like it because of I just like it because I know it fits in. You know, it's got a low PE. It's got a high dividend. The the CEO doesn't write a load of old toffee in his statements. It's been going a long time. It's got a decent balance sheet. And, you know, as soon as I see that, the market is 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 gives me a bit of a, a, a tailwind and I'll buy it. And so I'll end up with a big portfolio of stuff. And then suddenly the market will start behaving in a very strange manner. Because if you've got a port decently broad portfolio, it will behave in a certain way. It will, you know, the market goes up 10 points, you'll make five grand. It go down 12 points, you'll lose one grand. And you go, oh, that's good market down. It will, and you learn its behavior and then suddenly it'll start to malfunction. And that's often the, the signal that something bad's about to happen because whatever's going on underneath the market has changed that dynamic. So, you know, um, big insurance companies having to sell um, stocks and switch it into Forex or something, all that weird and wonderful stuff. So you sat there for two or three years and everything's going fine. And suddenly it all starts to not behave right. So it gives you a viewpoint on what's going on. But right now, are you risk on or are you risk off? And if you're risk off, you should just do lots of house cleaning and, and sell down until you're comfortable. And if you're risk on, you should be going around trying to find things that, that fit your investment criteria. It, I'm mainly invested in the UK because um, that's a market I know very, 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 very well. Um, and I'm a value investor and there's so much value there, it would make your eyes bug out. So, you know, it, it's ultra, ultra cheap stocks. And there are cheap stocks in America, but in the US, I, I tend to follow, I have followed in the past, internet companies because i understand that um and there often are cheap ones and you go i used to go oh well you know if it's not 10 times sales it's cheap and if it's a good um product and i've used it and they're making they're good making good sales and it's a two times sales why wouldn't i buy that 
because it should be somewhere between two and ten and it's at two and it's a good business buy it sit on it and bob's your uncle they get sold they get bought out so you've you have your little tricks you have your little ideas and when you risk on you go there and when you risk off you leave or you just buy and hold and don't look at it and see how that works for you I am loving the conversation. I want to make sure that before we get out of here, that we get your opinions on what's happening within the crypto space, because you do put out quite a few articles on Seeking Alpha about crypto and Bitcoin and what is happening there. Um, I'm just going to kind of open the floor to you, because obviously I have so many questions that could be like, where do you see it going? What's going on with the price action? You know, I think there was a margin call that people started speculating about last week. Uh, where where Bitcoin's price just kind of tanked overnight one night. Like, what are your thoughts on this space? And is it investable right now? Well, my, my thoughts are this. is It's clear that the U.S. government want to get rid of crypto. And, and they're basically sending their, their drone armies out to choke it off. Now, there was a thing called Operation Choke Point back under Obama's administration, where they tried to put out about 30 different industries out of business. And they did that by cutting them out of the banking system. And most of them you'd want to see um, put out of business, you know, pornography, prostitution, payday loans, blah, 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 ATM providers. But you can see that some of them are euphemisms for other people, but for people that were borderline crime. But even had things like dating sites, dating services and coin dealers. And you can look it up on Wikipedia, just type choke point. And it, it, they got outed. People got wind of it and it came out in the media and they went oh i know it's naughty and i know we shouldn't be doing that oh i'll stop doing it then yeah right of course you will so what is going on with crypto right now in the us looks very much like choke point now china's already done it obviously china you know crypto is basically illegal in china although lots of things i'm sure are illegal in china that go on all the time um and america seems to be wanting to follow that loop and it, it it's um you know, very difficult to imagine why crypto is so high at the moment with that kind of going on. But I've come up with this completely insane um, idea, which, um, you know, you won't hear it anywhere else. So at least it's original, even if it's rubbish. And that is, if you look at Grayscale, which is the Bitcoin trust, Bitcoin is $11,000 there. And if you look at crypto on Binance, God forbid you should use it and get arrested or whatever, you know, they're, they're the sort of people that are marked out by the US as, you know, bad and, and must 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 go. But if you look at Bitcoin, if you look at Bitcoin on an exchange on a Kraken or a Coinbase, it's twenty two thousand dollars. So. What's going on there? Well, you could say Grayscale is all connected with the and therefore or you could just simply say in the world of crypto, Bitcoin's worth twenty two thousand dollars. And in the world, in our world, or not, not maybe not mine, but in most people's world, Bitcoin is worth $11,000. So in the real world, it's worth $11,000. But in the crypto world, it's worth $22,000 because they're so divergent. That's such a different world. And I was thinking about this back in the day, 18th century. Um, there was a set of islands called the Yap Islands. And the Yap Islanders used big rocks with holes in the middle as money. Or I'm, I'm sure small, small rocks as well. They were, they were called rye stones. And they used to have to paddle out to this volcano many miles away across the sea and then chip them out of, of the rock and then put them in their canoes and row back. So you can imagine that that had it's like mining Bitcoin 
had a certain value of rarity in it. And that was their currency. And the more yapstones, the bigger they were, the more they were worth. And even if your canoe sunk and you dropped this big yapstone in the sea, it could never be come out. It could still be counted as an asset. You know, we've seen all those assets before as well, haven't we? So anyway, they were yapstones and they, they had a great value to the Yap Islanders. Rye stones, not yapstones. Anyway, so along comes Mr. You know, sailing ship from, from Europe and goes, Oh, you want to swap those valuable wood trees and spices for some rocks? Have I got a deal for you? Off they went, carved out the rocks, came back and completely um, inflated the local currency of rock until it was worthless because they could get them easily and cheaply and bring them to the Yap Islanders because they got nice big boats. And, you know, the value of a Yap stone to, uh, sorry, rye stone to the people of Yap was worth a lot more than the value of a rock was the European sailors. And I've got a funny feeling that there's this tension between the believers, the crypto people like me, and the, the rest of the world will go, crypto? What's that? And there will be this war between the people that, that get it, whether it's people that get it, that it's a load of rubbish, and the people that get it that think it's the best thing since sliced bread. But it's a very, very, very tough road ahead if the American government is set upon, you know, basically squishing cryptocurrencies, which is what the way it will go, or basically squeezing it down into a niche that's so controlled that it, it will be, you know, it won't have the power and benefits that it has had in the past from being something that could run, run riot, for want of a better way of putting it. So I think it's a very mixed picture ahead. And I and I it's still I can't understand I, I can understand why it's so high, but it's very, very high. And I, I you know, I'm think I I feel until it goes under 10,000, I'm not gonna be playing because it's not cheap until it's under 10,000. And I like to buy cheap and then sell when it's not cheap. And at the moment it's not cheap. But if you take that and forget everything I've just said and just go, what's the what's blockchain about? It's about much, 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 much more than cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency is just like a like a side issue. It's it's where it was born. It was the tip of the spear. The actual rest of of crypto, what's behind the tip of the spear, is much much more important than than Bitcoin and even Ethereum. It's what Ethereum opened up with its with its internal computing abilities um, and things like NFT, which are are keys to a whole into whole new industries and what's going to come after that daos maybe maybe some permutation of that but there's a whole set of applications that haven't even been invented yet that will just turn everything upside down because what blockchain actually does is it delayers all these gatekeepers and middlemen that we are so um you know uh, that are a pestilence in all our lives Clint, I'm going to go ahead and say, let's wrap it up. There was a lot of great information you gave out to us, but if people want to get in contact with you, stay in touch, read your articles, wherever, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you at? Well, um, you can get me. I think I've got on the bottom of my articles with you, I've, I've got an email and I do read the email. And, and, and you know, if you've um, bought Bitcoin at 60,000 or, or I've got some guy who's upset with me because I'd said Bitcoin will, when it was at 60,000, will get down to 13 and it only got down to 15 and he, he missed this little bump. So, you know, I even read those ones. Clem, I got to say, I was reading the most recent Bitcoin article you put out. I think it was here at the beginning of the year. And you did mention that 13,000 on Bitcoin has been your target for a year. 
and you could easily see another leg down before Easter. Kind of sounds like you're still in that boat, right? You're now you're saying under ten. I, 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 you know, it's very hard to get the bottom, and even if it got there, it might only be there for ten minutes because the bottom of the market it doesn't sit around waving a flag saying I'm here. It, you you get that moment of, of capitulation, and it can only last minutes. So you can't be expect to get that. All you need to do is get near the bottom and get out near the top or get in nearish the bottom and get out in the middle and you'll be laughing. But, you know, th these developments with the American government, which seem to be like swarming around all sorts of different pinch points, um, you know, that's 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 very bearish in my book. And, you know, th the American government always gets its way. And if they really do want to squish um, Bitcoin and ETH and, and all this stuff, then, you know, it, it's going to have a very hard time and it would be down to Europe to, to take up the, um, up the whole idea. But the thing to remember about new technology is that you can't put it back in the bottle. And I mean, the funny story that I, I like to tell is once upon a time in Venice, Venice was the Mediterranean superpower. And it had galleys, you know, like Ben-Hur, rowing galleys. And they would they fight their wars with galleys. And people came to them and said, no, it's, you've got to use sailing ships, you know, with sails. And that's the future. That's the new technology. And they went, you've got to be kidding me, right? Because those things, the wind blows one way. They have to go one way. And they can't just turn around like we can and ram you. You know, that's just rubbish, that is. We've ruled the whole of the Mediterranean for 500 years with rowboats. We're not going to go with sailboats. That's, that's rubbish, that is. So anyway, it turned out that the sailing ship with cannons was the way to go. So Venice went from a, a country or a small city that ruled the whole of the Mediterranean to a city that just had a damp problem. Right. Clem, thank you so much for your time today. Everyone that's listening to right now can't encourage you enough to go read Clem's research on Seeking Alpha. He's there. He interacts. I see you answering people back in the comments. So thank you so much for being a part of the community. Thank you for coming on the podcast. We can't wait to have you on next time. Thanks, Daniel. Look forward to it. Just a reminder, everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you again next week with a new episode and a new guest.